Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady. And for today's episode, I spend time with Toby Savage. Toby is a longtime friend and someone that I've long admired as a traveler. He's also an expert on Land Rovers of all vintages and also has spent quite a bit of time working on the long range desert expeditionary group content and history that goes all the way back to World War II. So enjoy my conversation with Toby. We talk a lot about historical places. We talk a lot about travel and we talk a bit about Land Rovers. And a special thanks to Rocky Talkies for their support of this week's podcast. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team in Denver. The radios are extremely rugged, easy to use, and compact, weighing in at just under eight ounces. They have a range of one to five miles in the mountains and up to 25 miles line of sight. The batteries will last from three to five days, and you can recharge them easily via USB-C right in the vehicle. Our team uses Rocky Talkies, and we also used them recently at the Overland Expo. The next Overland Expo, stop into our booth and say hello and check out the radios for yourself. And as a listener of the Overland Journal podcast, you can get 10% off a pair by going to rockytalkie.com forward slash Overland Journal. Thanks again, Rocky Talkie. Thank you all for watching. I'm here today with Toby Savage. It is so great to have you on the podcast. What a joy. Well, I'm, I'm flattered, Scott. I really am flattered. Thank you very much for coming over, especially from the States, just to interview me. Yes, and we just we just had a nice little drive in the Grenadier. We drove about yeah. drove about 10 miles over to get uh, some food at, at, at a pub, yeah. because all the pubs in this little village were closed. Yeah, yeah. We had a, I had a pint of London Pride, which is a, a very good bitter. <laughs> and you had the kitchen. I did have a Guinness, I did, which is, yeah. I do like a dark beer. If I'm going to have a beer at all, it'll be a dark one. Yeah. And we're actually recording the podcast right now in, a, in an old horse stable. So that they've turned into an Airbnb and it seems to be working out just fine. It's very comfortable. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's nice. I think yeah. it'll be a good home base for me over the next yeah. couple of days. So there's there's so much to talk about your career as a journalist, your career as a professional photographer, your exploits as an adventurer around the world. Um, but I think it would be interesting to know where did it all start? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, well, it has always been there, and it doesn't come from my mum and dad, who were pretty stay-at-home, really. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side, he, he did a lot. He was in the First World War. Sadly, he was in Gallipoli, Passchendaele, and the Somme, and survived. Um, so he'd seen some action. He travelled a lot. So he, they moved out to Singapore when he was in his 20s, and, and then moved back to Britain. Mm. Um, so there was a, a bit of travel there. But I really didn't know about that when I was growing up. It was more camping trips with my friends from school, sure. uh, which I always enjoyed. And I remember making lists of how many tea bags to take and slices of bread. And I was obsessive with it, and I probably still am. But that organising of events means as much to me as the actual event itself, doing the planning, because it's very important. And, and if you plan things properly, you have less mistakes, mm-hmm. hopefully. But then we had a teacher, Mr. Kirby, Jeff Kirby, when I was probably 13, who had what he called an old Land Rover, but in 1967 it can't possibly have been that old. He used to take groups of us camping at weekends. Yeah. And there was no paperwork. It was just ask your mum and dad if it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And it was. Yeah. So 
you know, that can't be done anymore no. in our teaching environment. It's too difficult. Mm. But then it was, it was great. And that really did give me an appreciation of getting out there in the countryside and camping, which is last to this day. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually camping in France next this weekend <laughs> under canvas. Can't believe it. That sort of formulated the, the outdoor part of my life, which continued. What would you say was your first big Land Rover adventure? I'm this year celebrating 50 years of Land Rovers. Not because they're Land Rovers, I like them and they're pretty good, but they were the, they were the key to doing the things I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. They had four-wheel drive, they were simple to bend and they were cheap. And that sort of applies today, really. They are a means to an end, as are other things. But for me, it just happened to be a Land Rover. So I bought this thing in 1973 for 120 quid. It was a 1954 86-inch series one. And we lived, uh, I was at Art College, we lived in a 22-foot caravan just below Figsbury Ring and Iron Age Hill Fort, behind the lorry yard for two pounds a week. It was hippie stuff. <laughs> and I had long hair and wore snakeskin trousers. <laughs> as, that, as one does. As one does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we, we thought well, we'd take this on holiday. So we took it to Wales on holiday. And the thing's enormous. Yeah. And of course we got it stuck on the beach and we got into trouble from the beach management and then we got it stuck trying to get into a farm to camp the night. But all those experiences, you realise that when you are stuck, you will get unstuck. <laughs> you know, and that is an important thing to remember. We didn't have a winch or anything. We just had some planks of wood and some rope. But we did get unstuck. And I think that sort of must have sunk in. Because every time I have got stuck, and there's been many, I see it as an opportunity to get unstuck. <laughs> and I think we're all a bit like that. Well, and it makes for a great memory. Well, yeah, it's another couple of paragraphs yeah, that's in right. a feature, you know, how we got unstuck. In your story, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the first time that you wrote about Land Rover. You've been I, featured in Overland Journal many times, and you've been featured in publications around the world. And what was your first feature article? And there was a bit of luck involved. I'd been to a Beaujolais Nouveau tasting uh, in Leicester in 1992. And when I came out, I bumped into an archaeologist who I knew. This was nine in the morning, and I had four glasses of red wine. So it wasn't the best time to have a business meeting. But he said, "Oh, you're a photographer. Aren't you? You're actually doing some archaeological photography." I said, "Yeah, yeah, it'd be great." I thought no more of it, and then he contacted me and said, "If you're on for it, we've got this dig going on, and we'd like you to come take some pictures." And I just assumed it'd be some muddy field, but it was just outside Rome in the, oh, wow. in the hills. It was just a beautiful spot. So I thought, "Well, we're onto something here." That has the gravitas of a decent story for a, a Land Rover magazine and also I can do some uh, travel photography which I used to do sell through a library in London I could do that and I was, had a client who did tourism paid you more holidays in Leicester they were quite well established so I thought if I could pull in three little bits of income and like a car it would work yeah sure I mean, I would have done it anyway so I contacted Land Rover who this is the, the days when they're owned by British Aerospace I think and Colin Walkie and Josephina Zaccaroli Walker with a PR department, press office. Well, I put this plan together. I said, this is what I'm going to do. And they said, yeah, blimey. I said, yes. <laughs> said, we'll drop it off at your house. I could not believe it. Anyway, the, the brand new Range Rover Classic now, TDI, was dropped off at my house. What a beautiful car. Uh, well, it was perfect. It did about 30 to the gallon. I wasn't yeah. in a hurry. 
it was comfortable, it was brand new. Yeah, sure. So I, I set off, I went up into uh, Austria and Germany and then dropped down into Italy. And because there's no mobile phones or satellite navigation, and it was a map, a, a pretty vague indication of where the archaeologists were. But I did find them in the end and spent three or four days with them. And we got some, I did some video and I did some still pictures of what they were doing. And I did some nice pictures of the Range Rover, which then went on to make the front cover of Land Rover Owner, oh, which was yeah. like a big deal. And I had five pages inside as well. So I thought, I want to something here. This is good. And I paid for it. So, <laughs> uh, well, with a bit of pay from here and a bit of pay from there, the trip cost me nothing. I thought, I like this. So I've based the rest of my life on, <laughs> on that, really, travelling and doing things for other people. Uh, and having a great time. When we were talking earlier at the pub, you talked about um, a series of yeses moving you in the direction that you wanted to go. And and it is, that's one of the greatest challenges in life is, is knowing what to say no to and what to say yes to. Yeah, I tend to say yes to most things. <laughs> well, it's worked out well for you. It, it has, but you sort of weigh it up, don't you? And you think, well, yeah, that sounds fun. And, uh, I've never been materialistic. So as long as I've got enough money to live, that'll do. So yeah. if I've left with ten pounds, and that's all there is. I'd spend it on diesel. And yeah. just, you know, <laughs> eat, eat something. That urge to travel, and it gets more so as I get older as well. You, know, you think, oh, I've got, got hundred pounds here. I could do that. You know, and I do it. Well, and recently you did. So let's talk about the the trip you just got back from. So you yeah. you left the UK on your six fifty GS, and yeah. where did you go? I, I had it in mind. So through the winter, I've been sitting down on Google Maps and uh, Street View thinking, I can go there and I can go there and I can go there. And I didn't think I'd do it. I thought, I'll have the plan in place. And then if there's a suitable period of time and I've got money on something, I'll do it. I bought the, the motorbike the year before with a view to doing a trip on it. So I don't ride a motorbike just for A to B. It's, it's for a trip. Um, I do have a little Honda 125 for whizzing around on, but this was proper. And I've got all that luggage and all the gear and no idea I have to say because I've only been riding for I suppose it's 20 years now but I came into motorcycling late so the plan was in place and then various circumstances conspired to think well look I could do this next week I put nothing the weekend came I thought yeah Monday I'll go so it was it was that short a time because I had six weeks with nothing much on. So I booked a ferry from Portsmouth to Santander in northern Spain. So it was one hop down to Portsmouth, which is relatively straightforward, in the cold and the rain. So I arrived there with, with, with three bikers waiting to get on. And the funny thing about bikers, they, they assume you want to talk about the bike <laughs> and not about the trip. Yeah, sure. So, oh, yeah, well, what's that bike? Well, I think, I don't know, it's a bike. Uh-huh. Um, I, I really don't know, don't want to know lots about the workings of them as long as it goes. Anyway, I played the game and then we got on the ferry. The next day, stepped off in Santander in Spain, where it was still a bit iffy in the weather. And I went along the north coast into France and then up into France for a bit and then dropped down. And I just had no timetable. And what I liked about being on a motorcycle is you can't carry too much clobber. You can carry your clothes and so you keep warm and dry, and that's it. And that's about it, yeah. Yeah, Maybe a few snacks. Yeah, a few snacks, yeah. Um, And some water to drink. But I was always intended to stay in hotels. There were a couple of times when I difficulty finding one. But I got into a rhythm of sitting in bed with my laptop in the morning and going on Booking.com and thinking I'll stay there, then plotting a route that avoided motorways and big roads. And it was beautiful. 
the roads I travelled on were just gorgeous, empty of traffic, good tarmac. I'd probably do 100 to 150 miles a day, which is doable. Yeah, very modest. Yeah. Very modest. I didn't yeah. want to be a hero. Uh, I was going to have a good time. So yeah. I, I went up through France and down through Italy, where I stayed with a friend for a couple of nights in northern Italy, and then down to Bari on the southeast coast, and then got a ferry overnight to Albania, where I'd never been, and I heard lots of good things about it. And it lived up to expectations. So now, how does Albania compare, like with Croatia, for example? Because they they share the same coastline, yeah. But but they're you know of course Albania is much further south. It's further south and it's poorer, but it will catch up. So yeah. it, it came across to me as a it was definitely poorer. Things were cheaper. The Albanians were very friendly, and the, the mountains uh, were just gorgeous. And again, nobody there. So the routes I was picking were exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be riding up a gentle slope through woodland, yeah. getting to the top, seeing a huge view, taking a deep breath and thinking how lucky I am to yeah. stand here and do this. And yeah, then, we are so lucky. Yeah, yeah. You know, people, they'll sit in the pub saying, oh, I think I might go and do this and they don't do it. You know? <laughs> and time flies by if you don't do it. Well, yeah, and you get to, you know, you think, well, one day I'm going to do this trip. Oh, get out there and do it, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, Albania was very nice. I ended up in a sort of seaside resort at the end, which was quite very comfortable, really, in a, in a nice hotel, which was only 50 quid a night. And for what it was, it was good. And then it chucked it down in rain. So I thought, well, I'll stay another night. <laughs> so I did. Fantastic. And then you ultimately made it to an island, and then you had to yeah. leave the bike behind. I went down through Greece and crossed over on the ferry to Kos, because uh, my aim was to go to Turkey to see some friends there. Kos is a beautiful island. I, I rode around that and stayed in the town of Kos, which is where the port is. And there was a listing of a ferry daily, but they said, oh no, it's every other day now, because it's off-season. So I was in this hotel near the port. I went back and said, okay, I have a ticket for me and the bike. And they said, what bike? Bicycle. I said, no, motorbike. Oh no, you can't, you can't. There's no cars or motorbikes going over until the summer. The boat's being serviced. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. Right, so I said to the hotel, do you mind if I leave my bike right outside your office window for a couple of days? He looked at me as if to say, well, of course we don't mind. They're so friendly. So I I had to take a lot of stuff off, put it in the panniers, lock them, cover it with a cover. It looked a bit of a mess. But he said, no, it's all right, leave it there. So I did, and I I was a foot soldier over to to Turkey. I thought, well, I'll come back in two days. But then the wind got up, and the ferry was cancelled. So... I was stuck there for a week. <laughs> there are worse places to be stuck. Of course. But I, I had to phone the hotel. I said, look, I'm really sorry, but can I leave the bike there for another few days? He said, of course you can. I thought, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I got back and everything was fine. And then I caught the ferry back to Greece. I'd been intending to ride up through Turkey, past the area of Gallipoli and the Bosphorus and do that, but that didn't happen. So I went up the east coast of Greece and then into Macedonia, which was quite a culture shock. Such a poor country. It's yeah. Like, it was like a quarter of the prosperity of the other places, which was fine as a tourist because you get a lot for your money. But sure. you could just see that there oh, was a huge generalization. But the women seem to stay at home. The men go out drinking, gambling, and smoking. And you think, this is your life, isn't it? it probably was for a lot of. Yeah. It was a, quite a shock. But I stayed there for three nights before coming up into. What's next? Serbia, I think. Serbia was next. But where it became more civilized. In Macedonia, what was the terrain like? Was it mountainous? Is it, all of the geography is fairly similar. Mm. All through Greece and Macedonia and Serbia. Pleasant. Nice mountains. 
good roads. Um, oh, nice. Macedonia, the roads were a bit put on. In fact, I remember Rick Peewee saying to me when we were driving with him through the desert, Long eye, short eye. So you keep your short eye on the potholes and your long eye on the idiot to <laughs> and pull out in front of you. And that mantra has stuck with me. So thanks, Rick, if you're watching. Yeah. Yeah, Rick is, he's uh, just a legend yeah. within the Jeep community. Oh, yeah. And, and I forgot about the fact that you did that long-range desert long range, group. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute, because that was, that was I thought, a very ambitious, and it was a, generally like a very well-regarded expedition that you did. Combination of saying yes, and, and yeah. a lot of luck, and a bit of down the, the battle was we had to postpone it for a year because of the Arab Spring. So we had everything in place. We had the two Jeeps ready. We had uh, some excellent guests, Rick being one of them, and, and Bob Atwater from the Explorers uh, Club, Jason also from that, a Swedish author who'd just written a book on the long So he said, oh, I can't believe we're going to go. Yes, let's go. And it was all in place. Yeah. And then they, they kicked out um, the Egyptian leader, I think. Yeah, so they booted him out. It all kicked off. And it was just too dangerous to go into Egypt. Sure. And Mahmoud, our... Egyptian friends said, look, you can't buy it. We were ready to go. So I had to send an email saying, look, guys, this is a situation. Planning on postponing, and I hope you'll stick with us, because we, we might not do it next year. Rick's comment was, can't we just fit machine guns? Probably not. I like your style. So we, we did it the following year, and we shipped the Jeeps to Alexandria in a container, and it, took, it was a hassle getting them out. But it was always going to be a hassle, because it's North Africa. Of course. And then we yeah. got them out and we completed 1,200 miles of pure desert in two 1943 Jeeps. With backup, we had a truck, two Toyotas, an army, a Toyota with four guys from the military, tourist policemen. You have to have them. They wouldn't have been any use if anything had happened, but yeah. that's the rule you have to pay. So it was always quite a big budget production, really, but we managed to pull it together and we, we achieved it. And we, to this day, I God, that was... Incredible. What was the history of the long-range desert group? Why is that significant? I mean, I know some of it, but I... Yeah, it was... For it, the reader to... Or they, 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 they were a big part of our victory in North Africa. So there's a guy called Ralph Bagnold, who, between the walls, was stationed in Cairo. And they, these were clever guys, you know. They were from universities in, Mester, in England. They had to do their national service, and they ended up in Cairo. So you've got half a dozen bright people who are adventurous holed up in Cairo. So they started to go out into the desert in their mm. Model T forts and map it. Mm. And then their trips got more and more ambitious sure. to, to a point where Ford were giving them the new Model A. And they take all the bodywork off and put a flatbed on the back, load it up with jerry cans, and they do a thousand miles into the desert, which nobody had ever done before. And being academic and clever, they mapped it and were accurate. Mm. And they, they used a radio to communicate with Cairo and with their friends back there over distances you wouldn't even imagine. So when the war started and the Italians were very active in Libya and wanted to come into Egypt, Bagnall suggested to the, the head of command that he should perhaps form a little group to go and create havoc. And it was rejected twice. They said, oh, let me see, you can't go out in the desert. He said, we can, we can, we've done it. So in the end, they did. And that to start with, they were just doing road watch. So they'd go to the middle of nowhere and watch the trucks come down that way on the track that wasn't sure. to, linking Italian bases and then count them going back and note that they were lighter and then they'd radio that back to Cairo and say 20 trucks gone south 20 trucks gone north and log all the times sure so they built up a picture of what 
the enemy were doing. It's a fantastic story. And then they got involved in some action and did a few raids, which were, they snuck in from nowhere and then disappeared. So they were called the Ghost Patrol by yeah. the Italics. Where did they come from? Yeah. They're in the desert. And they come and they go and clear off. Yeah, amazing. So we wanted to recreate some of those routes that they did. And we we didn't find them because they were known already, but there's trucks still out there, upside down and blown up, that we visited. And you just think, yeah, we're here. We're looking at the very and, trucks. And did the long-range desert group actually use Jeeps at some point? It, it was sort of. Their truck was the Chevy, a big ah. two-wheel drive Chevy, which you think, well, why? But they were lighter. Yeah, sure. And they had big flotation tyres on, and yeah. their drivers were skillful. Sure. So they did, and a lot of us used two wheel drive. You only need it if you get stuck for yeah. But then the SAS sort of came out of the long range desert. Sterling, David Sterling, who was more of an action man, and that, that coincided with the launch of the Jeep, really. So they, the Jeep was far more manoeuvrable, quicker, lighter, and could be in and out much faster. Sure. So that's so we weren't strictly true having Jeeps, but you can't get a Chevy. It's ridiculous. So the Jeep was perfect. And I remember looking at the images, and it looked like they cut out quite a bit of the grill to increase yeah. the, the airflow. Is that right? I, there's mixed theories, but a lot of people on the pictures commented, "Why did you cut the grill out?" Do your history. You know, that's what they did, and I can't see it made much difference to the cooling. But if you've taken in a load of sand mm. in a sandstorm, and that that front bit is full of sand, you want to be able to scoop it out. So that's one theory, because we did have a sandstorm. And Interesting. It, it, did, it didn't fill, but you could suddenly see, oh, yeah, we can scoop the sand out in front of the radiator. Why do they have access to it? Yeah. Interesting. We had a mesh actually over the radiator, so stone damage. You couldn't see it. It was painted black, but the sure. mesh stopped stones going through. You learn these things, don't yeah, you, with experience. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Simple yeah. solutions. Let's talk about, after the, the Long Range Desert Group, what were some of the other trips that you did into, well, anywhere in the world that you found you just really loved? I think Libya will always be my favourite. I was working with some good guys, groups of archaeologists, um, and it was a project run by Professor David Matting at Leicester University, you will know, and he just said, do you fancy coming out? We could do with a photographer who knows a little bit about land rovers. So I pretended to be both, <laughs> and, uh, and I got away with it. They had some old Series 3 out there that broken down catastrophically the year before, 1997. The truth is, when you say to an academic, what was wrong with it? It's a bit broke. Yeah, but any more detail? Any you know? kind of detail. Did it sound like, or did it boom, boom, or did it, you know, Anyway, we ascertained it. They had a couple of burnt out, it was a slipping clutch. A minibus went out with those bits on it, and I flew out with them, because it was when Tripoli Airport was closed to UK. We couldn't fly them, so the embargo. We all met up. Got there, took the thing apart. I was pretending to be a mechanic as well at that time. So we, we did get the engine out, put the new clutch on, took the cylinder head off, put the new valves in, and it worked. So I got away with it, and then we drove it down to the desert. And then the next year, I thought, I'll bring mine. Yeah, it's better. So I took my caravan about in 1999, and I combined that. with I came back the pretty way, so they came back via Tunisia and back. I went up to Tripoli and turned right, and went on to Cairo and to Jordan, Syria, Turkey. Back, so it was a big trip. How was? How did you go from from Egypt into Jordan? We, the I took the ferry from Aqaba. And yeah. what did you think of of Jordan? Well, it's it's very English. They got Marks and Spencers and stuff because yeah. the king is English educated with an yeah. English wife. It was civilized. Syria less so, and that was before there was any trouble. Yeah, because I was looking at a route that would take me through through Jordan and then into northern 
Iraq. Yeah. You, can, you can northern Iraq is actually a better route than Syria now. Syria oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Has it opened up now? You can go to Iraq. Yeah, northern Iraq. It's starting to open up. Genuinely. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? You have written about Land Rovers for fifty years, yeah. and you've owned a few of them yourself. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite? Well, I've owned them for fifty. I've written about them for thirty years. Okay, that, that's a long time, isn't it? It only occurred to me this year. God, it's fifty years since I bought my first one. And you don't still have that one, do you? The eighty-six inch, no. I sold it. and I bought a VW Beetle. It was cheap. And then a friend of mine bought a nineteen forty-eight Land Rover, Steve Teague, who I was at college with. So in his last year of college, he bought his forty-eight. I thought, you know, I really fancy another Land Rover. I want an eighty-inch. I kept an eye on. Sure enough, one cropped up. We had a magazine called Exchange and Bar, where everything was 1948. It was in London. I was in Salisbury at college. So I caught the train to London. It was £85, <laughs> which was a lot in 1974. A lot of dodge. And I went into the bank and I wanted to draw out cash, knowing I had nothing in the bank account. So in those days, you had to write out a cheque, pay cash, £100. You know, so pushed it over there. He said, how would you like the money, Mr. Savage? I said, tens. <laughs> okay. Gave it me. And I walked out. So I was £100 overdrawn like that. But I got the money. And I caught the train <laughs> to, to London. <laughs> saw the Land Rover and bought it. And drove back. It was easy. It was absolutely freezing. I did no heater. But I got it back away. It was fine. Uh, and then, so that was April 1970. And then you had to work really hard to get the, the bank paid back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've always sort of put that to one side. <laughs> But I've still got it. So that's that's the great thing. I Amazing. still have that same Land Rover. And I, it's still in use. And, and how many Land Rovers do you have total? Well, I'm thinking I've got four. Just, yeah, I need one more. And you have, like, you know, like on Amazon, you can have a subscription to bring in, you know, your vitamin C or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Do you have oil comes in? Yeah, well, yeah. Just... Well, yeah, you need a bit, yeah. <laughs> well, I have... The, the two I use is the 1948 one on a hot sunny day with a screen down. It's fantastic. And I'm 19 again. And then I have the, the Land Rover Carol Wagon, which I've had for 25 years. The one I've done most of the trips in. So that's been to Libya, I think, seven or eight times. Been to Algeria with Chris Scott. Mm-hmm. Been down through Tunisia and Egypt and all of Europe and Portugal and, well, yeah, all of Europe. So I've done a lot of, probably 100,000 miles of travel. And if I remember that one, either it's permanently up or it, 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 it pops up. up. It yeah. pops up, but it has two kind of half circles, isn't it? Yeah, it's really right. It's very interesting. They were boat builders, so mm-hmm. they, they thought we'll do this bespoke upmarket conversion. So the mm-hmm. top is a sheet of aluminium that does that. There's some hinging wood. It's a very good design. Last year I had that all replaced and it cost a fortune. But the wood, you could you could crumple it in your hand. It's sure. wrong. Sure. This is from 1970. Sure. You know, in the last 20 years, it's had a TDI engine, discovery transfer box, so it's faster, big Alice Ball intercooler, so it's more powerful. I mean, all this stuff's old now, but at the time, I wanted it to be the vehicle I needed to do expeditions. Sure. And it is. Um, and it's, you know, it had a service earlier this year, so it's ready to go again this summer, wherever I go. It's, it's ready. And a special thanks to Onyx Off-Road for helping to support this week's podcast. Going further on your adventures is about having the right tools. The Onyx Off-Road app's intuitive maps make it easy to find trails and disperse camping. And their offline maps give you full GPS navigation capability without cell coverage. I'm also really excited about their new route builder for planning and sharing custom trips. 
It's got a snap to trail tool where you can just drop points where you want to go and a route automatically connects to the closest road or trail. You can build, save, and add routes to folders and share your entire trip with your buddies. You can find out more information on onxmaps.com. You can also find their apps in the Apple Store or whatever other device that you use. Thanks again, Onyx. Plan these trips and you've had all of these experiences. When you look back on that, what were some of the things that you learned? You know, like as a traveler, what, what, would, what advice would you give to a new traveler? To use the, the Nike term, just do it, because I've learned that you don't really need much. I mean, all you need is diesel and a washback, mm-hmm. really, isn't it? You, know, yeah. you can go in any car. You can go on a bus. Mm-hmm. You can fly, bus, taxi, hike, bicycle. Sure. You can do – you don't have to have all the – I'm sorry to upset your advertisers, but no. you don't have to have all the gear. Well, that's the advantage of what we do. We keep our advertisers completely separate from our editorial. Yeah, so. yeah. but it, it is good to have the gear. Yeah. You know, if you've got Sometimes, two weeks, yeah. if you've only got two weeks, you don't want to be faffing around getting stuck. Yeah. And you want your beer cold out of the fridge. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. And a bit of me is the same in the caravan. I have the fridge, I have the winch, I have the solar panels, I have the gear. But the simplicity of the motorbike travel is you can't take all that. Yeah. And then when I turn 60, I, you'll find this, these, these um, decades, you feel you have to do something to prove yourself to yourself. So I cycled from here to my friend in Italy, a 1,000 miles, yeah. on a bicycle. Yeah. Well, then you can't take anything. Yeah. And yet I did, manage, I, I did a lot of camping. So I had a lightweight tent, lightweight sleeping bag, some nights in hotels, other nights camping. What did you think of traveling by bicycle? How was that? You were accepted by everybody uh-huh. because you're not. You no know, intimidation. Yeah. No, no. And, oh, can you fill my bottle up with water? Yeah, of course I can. Yeah. And they're happy to help. Yeah. And if you're stopped at the side of the road, people stop and say, you okay? And say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you for stopping. And then, yeah. And it, but it's similar on a motorbike. If you yeah, stop on a bike, very similar. other bikers stop straight away and say, are you all right? Which you don't get if you put this sort of great wall of aluminium and glass between you and, and That's the That's very true. Yeah. And, and if you go even beyond that, up to the big expedition vehicles like the Unicats and the yeah. Unimogs and everything else, then you're like another planet. Yeah. And people just have a hard time relating to who, even who you are. Very, very intimidating. Yeah. And, and in some of the places that we've all traveled, you know, poor places, you're projecting an image of wealth. Yeah. And, you know, your accessory probably costs his annual salary. That's right. So... You're going to be the target for theft, really. But hopefully not, because most people are very honest. Yep. But you just think, well, hang on. You're sort of putting sweetest in front of the children here. Whereas my old caravan, it doesn't look as though it's worth anything. Yeah. It's got dents and scratches. Sure. There's, there's three sides to the other. One, I quite like it looking like that. Two, I can't afford doing anything about it anyway. And three, it, it doesn't look as though I've got any money, <laughs> yeah, which sure. is pretty accurate. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, but it allows you to travel freely. You're not, yeah. and you're, and if something happened to the vehicle, you'd be sad, of course. But it wouldn't be like it's not losing a, no, a half a million pound no. expedition vehicle. Yeah, no. no. Yeah. And, and here, as in the states, people like to buy all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we go to shows and we see something on display. I think you're kidding? How much? You know, <laughs> and then by the end of the weekend, it's gone. It keeps the whole industry going, so that's fine. Well, and I think I think people making the modifications that they find that they really need in order to do their trip. And some things you need, um, you know, like if you go into the 
high latitudes or if you want to cross glaciers or whatever, you have to have a certain piece of kit. If you go into the desert, yeah. if you go into the yeah. desert, yeah. you might benefit from some traction boards and things like that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it's highly specialized, but for the most part, you just really don't need much. You just well, don't. When you see the, there's a, there's a range of sand dunes in Libya, which are a bit of a tourist place. It's a, you go around three oases. It's beautiful. But the first bit is a climb up through some soft sand dunes. It's big. And you're in a little tea place out at the bottom watching people mess it up. You know? <laughs> and all the locals are there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the Tuareg drivers with their tassy old Toyotas on bull tires, you know, they just go straight up. They have no problem. And I have to say, I did it. But then you get to the top and find there's a Peugeot 504 pickup <laughs> is up there as well. Sure. On whatever tyres it happened to have. Yep. And you think, well, how did he get up? Well, he's local. He knows. Power of local knowledge. Yeah. yeah. They, they can read every grain of sand. Everything with yeah. huge skill. So I'm more for less than more now. And now that you look back on all of these amazing journeys, Toby, how, how did it change you as a person? How are you different today? I think I'm far more accepting of other cultures. I think if you don't travel and you stay in your own city or country, you have this fear of all foreigners, which is totally unfounded. I think travel reinforces that. It's a a big generalisation. You know, I have, you know, I've been in Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Ethiopia, Guatemala. A lot of lovely places, and I've met nothing other than friendship and a smiling face. You smile at them, they smile at you. For sure. It's as simple as that. If you go in thinking, he's going to rob me, cat, stab me, then you have your defences up. Yeah. Whereas if you go in with a, a smile and that's stupid, you know, they usually help you. <laughs> yeah. And I can't think of any occasion when I've felt uncomfortable. Crossing Serbia during a ceasefire in 1994, would it be? Oh, sure. That was a bit hairy because I got to the border and they all got Kalashnikovs, you know. I had the right documentation, but I showed them. They said, what's that? I said, it's a map. You know, I said, oh, I'm going there. And they obviously wanted to keep the map. I was like, I need it, you know. And they they had my passport. And I said, well, can I have the map back? They got the map back. And he was sort of sweaty and unshaven military guy. Well, this is a bit serious. I said, well, I need my passport, please. <laughs> yeah. So I smiled and was very polite, never lose your temper, you know, yeah. because otherwise you're there forever. And he did give me a passport. And it was a, I was very relieved to get over that bit of no man's land into Greece. It wasn't the people. The people mm. were fine. It was the official, the, the military official, who was a bit iffy, you know, but, but nothing happened. It was all right. So that's an interesting point in time. So when you were on that side of the Adriatic, yeah, I was on the other side of the Adriatic because oh. I was in the U.S. Air Force and I was stationed in San Vito in southern Italy oh. during the whole Slobodo Milosevic, the whole Bosnian. Well, nice posting. Yeah, Italy. It was a nice posting. So oh. yeah, we were... We yeah. were both on, and I was there in 1994. So it was about the same time. Yeah. yeah. There had been a ceasefire. It was just that window of opportunity yeah. to get across. I borrowed again. Land Rover lent me a P38 diesel. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the things that I love to ask in the podcast is uh, your favorite books. Are there anything that, any books that you've read, even if they're totally quirky out in the middle of nowhere? It, it, it was Ralph Bagnell's. Um, Trips through Libya that he wrote in, um, I think he must have written it just after the war, Travels in a Dead World or something, where he was describing their trips across the Sinai and, and down into the Sand Sea. Oh, wow. And I was reading that whilst traversing that terrain in 1999. 
Incredible. And you know, he'd be writing about somewhere. I think I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that 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 work by Bagnall was really good. That sounds like a great one. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I've just remembered you remind me actually. I lent it to Ben Stowe, who does Land Rover work up in Yorkshire. He's got it. And it's not even mine. It belongs to Ruth Pelling and I killed it. <laughs> so if you see this, Ruth, I'll get it back. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that was definitely the, um, a great book to read whilst there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So what's next for you? What's next on your plan? I, I'm, I'm thinking of a bit of a change of direction because the old age thing, you can't avoid it. You know, I'm not the Land Rover, the Caravan is fantastic, but everything's a bit heavier. Changing a wheel is heavy. Putting the roof up with its solar panels on is heavy. Uh-huh. It's easy to drive, but I'm thinking if I reach the end of my time with this big, heavy Land Rover. Uh, at the moment, it's just a plan that might happen this year, but I think I'll sell the bike anyway, which was the plan anyway. Sell the caravan and then sell the Audi that's out here and buy a VW camper. Oh, nice. Uh, you can get a 4 before one, Synchro. Right. With a good camper conversion. And it'll Perfect. be a lot of money, but it'd be just so easy. Yeah, you'll uh, be set. Uh, yeah, and I'll still be able to do trips, but at 40 miles to the gallon, yeah. 70 miles an hour. And it'll be lighter. Everything mm-hmm. will be lighter. So it's, it's, it's still giving into old age a bit, but I see it as a new chapter, really. And you know when you buy something new, you're a bit more keen to do things, aren't, mm-hmm. you, aren't you? You, know, you buy a new camera, you, oh, suddenly you take 5,000 pictures. <laughs> you, you buy a new car, you, you drive or you buy a new motorbike, you're out on it. So I need that stimulus. So I'll keep the 48 Land Rover because that's part of my life, but the Caravan, which I've had for 25 years, I think its days are, are done, really, because... Yeah. You know, this summer, someone got, else can use it. Someone else, it needs to be on a trip. You know, it's yeah. ready to go. Um, then I'll move that money into the Volkswagen. Sounds a bit boring and a bit sort of granddaddish, but <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm not forty anymore. You know, I'm nearly seventy, and yeah. whilst I'm in pretty good nick, I, can I still be seeing myself doing it when I'm eighty? Yeah. And the last ten years have gone by like that. I know. Yeah. So unbelievable how fast it goes. Yeah, changes have to be made, and yeah. I think it's better to be ahead of the game rather than <laughs> behind. Yeah, playing for it. I, I saw an interview with Michael Caine, an old one, where, where it was Billy Connolly, and they were talking about drinking wine. And Billy Connolly was at the time, this is probably 20 years ago, he was quite a big drinker. And, it, and Michael Parkinson said to Michael Caine, I said, well, how, do you, how are you on drinking? He said, well, I, I've cut right down. I just I have a couple of glasses a night. He said, because I don't want to get to the stage where the doctor says, You've got to stop drinking. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a bit like that. I don't want the doctor you've got to stop doing these trips, which I'd still do anyway. But I'd, if I make the trips easier on me, then I can carry on doing stuff. I think that's a great lesson. And it's it's also the nature of life. We, we, we change. And Sadly. Yeah. Our needs change. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, you're still thinking it, but the, the body is less uh, able to do these things. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Having said that, we're off cycling around the vineyards of Burgundy next week. <laughs> That's how you're staying in good neck. Well, yeah, because well, you're doing. I do get, that. I get an adequate amount of exercise. You can always get more, but yeah. Oh, that's great. I still do a bit. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. Now, yeah. how how do people find out more about your adventures? Well, any the, books that you've, uh, you've been uh, featured in, or your I'm a regular contributor to Classic Land Rover magazine, which is those grumpy old blokes writing about rusty old Land Rovers. Yeah. But we have a good time, and we're yeah. all mates, and the magazine sells pretty well. But I've also started building up a YouTube channel of films I've made over the last thirty years, edited down to a, a very precise five minutes, so nothing too long. And it's called "I Should Be Back on the Tenth," which is a sort of random date that I used to give <laughs> to wives and partners, meaning. 
I might be back. <laughs> yes, yes. You may or may not be there when you get back. Huh? <laughs> Funny enough, yeah. yeah. Uh, they've all been pretty understanding, really. Um, but, but the YouTube channel is sort of growing very slowly. I don't push it much, but it's good fun doing it. So the, the name of the YouTube channel is I'll Be Back on the 10th. I should be back on I the 10th. I should be back on the 10th. Yeah, so if you put that into YouTube, yeah, perfect. It, it should come up with a few. <laughs> Toby, it's been such a pleasure to spend time with you. It was great to go to the pub and catch up. Your travels have been a great inspiration to me and so many others. Uh, the work that you've put into Overland Journal, it's all incredible stories. And, you know, people can buy the back issues with your long range. Oh, LRDG, yeah. Yeah, the long range desert. Group. Yeah. And other other stories that you've done for us as yeah, well. Yeah, I did a, the Libyan stuff I did. That's I? right. Yeah. And that was just fantastic. Well, I, 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 as I said earlier, I, I took a picture there out in the desert. And I knew you'd use it because it, it was the sort of picture no one else would use. It had the carcass of a lamb <laughs> hanging in the foreground that had just been slaughtered. <laughs> so we were like, I don't know, three days out. For sure. Sure. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's been a great pleasure, Scott. And you've, you've brought out the memories that I've had in there. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Toby. <laughs> and we thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.